0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz.
1: And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen, to the one and only CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. partially back in the house here for a brand new week of broadcasting. I am having fun on vacation. But for you guys, it is Monday, August 16th. I promised you I wouldn't abandon you completely this week. Wanted to give you guys a bonus show, but just warning you from my vantage point, pre recording this, the revolution could have happened already. But I figured, you know, because COVID is so fluid, we did a lot of shows the last two, three weeks on this the treatment, the epidemiology of everything, everything we're doing wrong, everything we're not doing right. I figured I'd transpose that into what is probably the second most important issue, that not surprisingly tracks very closely with the same philosophy of everything we should be doing, we don't do, and everything that is antithetical to a solution and is like spraying lighter fluid on the fire, we do. Um, Kind of very similar, uh, and we're going to have a special guest today who really comes with a, a lot of years of experience on the crime issue to tell us about his new organization, but not just the organization, but the importance of the movement he's trying to create to bring back, you know, like Reagan's view on crime, actually believing in law and order, Um, just like we have Republicans selling us us out on COVID, on COVID fascism, all these Republican legislatures going along with it, these Republican governors, same thing on crime. I mean, we see this on other issues. Uh, To just set the table, I get these clever emails from you guys. I love how... When I establish a principle, some of you guys will take my analogies to the next level and really have some insightful uh, uh, analogies here. So Donald emails me, the COVID-19 vaccine is looking increasingly like cashless bail, and both could be intentionally used for the exact same reason. The COVID vaccine as a prophylactic vaccine doesn't stop the spread, right, like incarceration would. That's like the incarceration is like the ivermectin, the vitamin D. But the vaccine does allow the virus to learn how to not get caught the next time. And those of you who heard me, you know, a Friday show with Dr. Dan Stock uh, about viral immune escape, um, ADE, antibody-dependent enhancement disease, right? This is, this is really true. And indeed, it may have a long string of next times as learning opportunities each time not being incarcerated, but instead having increased opportunities to learn and mutate. And what dark purpose can this further? Just like cashless bail, this disrupts the normal functioning of society, increases the calls from otherwise sane Americans for more government intervention to correct this largely government-sponsored, if not caused, crisis. Without these issues plaguing society, Americans would notice their loss of liberty and demand a change back towards constitutional government. We are being groomed to accept the national you know, kind of microcosm of this business along with draconian government controls over every part of our lives, never-ending threats from criminals who go unpunished and viruses that spread unchecked are causing many of us to develop tunnel vision, focus on the immediate threats to our health and safety and not notice the threats to freedom and liberty. Never let a crisis go to waste. And I thought that was a brilliant email because again, you know, what they're doing is they're saying, "Hey, there's a, there's a gun problem, so we need gun control." Just like, "Oh, there's a virus. You gotta gotta lock down a mask. Uh, play footsies with it. Play, you know, mutation chicken with with it. With mass vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic like we've never done before." But the real solution is bolstering your security, and that's the vitamin D, the zinc, the ivermectin, the looking for cheap repurposed drugs, and with crime, it's. Locking up the bad guys, just take the problems off the streets. Um, We're seeing every day we read stories of guys that are like on his fifth burglary and then got out early. This is a case in Chicago, happened recently, and then breaks into a woman's house and threatens to, and rapes her repeatedly and says, if you do a good enough job, then I won't kill you. And this guy could have totally been taken off the streets. Again and again in New Jersey, there's a there's a recent case where a guy was let out because of COVID. That's another way the two issues, by the way, merge: COVID jailbreak. Two days later, he was arrested for murder, and this is happening over and over again. Now, the cancer started in the big urban areas, just like the mass mandates start in big urban areas. But what has been very disturbing, and and you know, my view, I've almost written off the urban areas, but. This cancer has grown, and what particularly happened during the 2018 midterms, Trump was very unpopular in 2018. We got a big backlash, as typically happens in a midterm when you're in power, and Democrats swept into office in all sorts of places. And because it was this anti-Trump vote, they reflexively voted down ballot for these alt-left Democrats, even in areas that – Maybe they're leaning Democrat, but they're not like the urban areas. They're typically, you might have had a Democrat prosecutor, but it was a traditional one. It wasn't a Soros one. But now in places like Northern Virginia and and other places, we're having Soros prosecutors not just in the urban areas, but in the suburban areas. Now with us today to explain this is a guest that some of you should remember. We've had him on two, three times, Sean Kennedy. He's my resident expert expert. On all things crime, he's a fellow at the Maryland Public Policy Institute, but he's also the president of a newly formed Virginians for Safe Communities. It's safecommunitiesva.com if you want to check it out. Hey, Sean, thanks for joining us today. And you're a Maryland guy. What's up with this Virginians for Safe Communities?
0: Hi. My, yeah, my uh, thanks, Daniel, for having me. I'm actually now a resident of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, of all things crime drove us out of uh, where we lived before in the district and uh, the fact that there were gunshots outside when my wife was holding our child uh, made it an easy decision to get out of the uh, get out of the district but unfortunately those problems are following us everywhere as we've seen over the last year and a half uh, murder and violence of all kinds are skyrocketing um, there's lots of Causes, But one of the reasons it's, it's accelerating and not at least being uh, held back is this radical push, uh, both in the legislatures and now at, at, the, at the level of the local prosecutors, district attorneys and such, uh, to basically uh, side with criminals at every point. One of the funny things you see over and over again, if you study these social justice, supposedly prosecutors, is they were all former defense attorneys or litigators who sued the police or sued the government over uh, enforcing the law. So they clearly come with a bias. They've almost never uh, prosecuted a felony case. And if they've ever been on the other side of a felony case, they were the defense attorney. So uh, we now have about 75 of them across the country. And in 2019, because it's an off-year cycle here in Virginia, three of them uh, took office in the northern Virginia suburbs of Arlington, Fairfax, and Loudoun And for people who don't know where those are, uh, that's where Dulles Airport is. in in Loudoun County, Uh, Fairfax is the largest suburb in the uh, area outside of D.C., Um, about over a million point one people. And uh, these D.A.s are now taking their agenda uh, to the courthouse. And that means ending cash bail. It means uh, diversion programs for even dangerous offenders. And in one case, just absurdity. I mean, they they often campaign on, you know, ending uh marijuana um possession cases, you know, and people always assume that means a dime bag or something small like that. In this case, the Arlington prosecutor, which has jurisdiction over the Reagan National Airport DCA, uh was brought a case by the police where an individual moved 50 pounds of marijuana and 400 vials of hashish oil, and she gave him A plea bargain where once he completes treatment, he will uh, uh, be allowed to withdraw all his pleas and only have a misdemeanor at worst on his record.
1: And as we know, that creates a cascading effect of, you know, leniency because then, you know, your criminal points don't pile up. And, you know, the story of all these cities is it's the people with the drugs, the firearms charges, the parole violations over and over again. Those are the ones every every heinous murder that we kind of report on. They have the same type of profile so that your murderers, your rapists, um, the, you know, the um you know all these like knockouts these brutal beatdowns that are caught on you know by the NYPD on these surveillance videos in New York City the subway attacks every one of them you see they have that profile and then you look their look up the record and like hey they barely served any time for any of this and and they were just let out so th- these are the people we're seeing um, here's my question to you so so you started Virginia's for safe communities to get rid of um soros prosecutors beginning with those 3 um so could you tell us about what you hope to do? And I want you to answer the question to describe this organization so people could maybe uh, help support it. It's it's really, in my view, more important than presidential elections at this point um, in, in our decentralized system um, and the feds being irremediably broken. But I want you to answer it in the prism of this question. We've seen two high-profile fights against soros prosecutors is a couple more ongoing but two in my mind that stick out one we succeeded one we failed in philadelphia you have the granddaddy of them larry krasner uh the guy who literally loves criminals there's never you know leave no criminal behind and you had a challenger we had again democrat primary guy was more law and order oriented backed by the police and he was crushed but then you go down to atlanta where you had that Soros prosecutor and there is, and I'm done, I'm forgetting her name. You know, a female um, black female prosecutor defeated him in a primary. And frankly, she's pushing to get tougher on gangs than even a lot of Georgia Republicans are. So what, what what have you learned is the right way to do this and the wrong way to do this?
0: Well, one of the things is you have to match your strategy to the local conditions. It is not totally fruitless, but it is certainly a waste of resources and a reach to approach an urban, uh, large cities uh, problem and basically talk to the voters like they're suburban, middle-class people and what they're concerned about. The way that carlos vega who's the philadelphia a veteran homicide prosecutor who himself i believe is black black puerto rican 35 year prosecutor in the philadelphia uh da's office before krasner took over and then he got fired uh and, and suing krasner right now over this and he ran he basically raised no money and i talked to carlos i like carlos but he raised no money and Uh, Whoever was really day-to-day running his campaign didn't get him out there. He didn't knock on doors. He didn't really explain himself to the media. He didn't have any specifics. Uh, And the only thing that was sort of buoying his campaign that anyone even paid attention was because the police unions uh, put together basically a super PAC and did very good ads, very very, uh, effective stuff if you were running a congressional race, even in Southeastern Pennsylvania, where you had the suburbs and, and such, I mean, if you look at the, the breakdown in the Philadelphia precincts, uh, Vega did very well in like the white Irish, Jewish, Italian parts of Philly. Uh, he got killed in the progressive hippie parts near UPenn and stuff and just destroyed in the black neighborhoods because uh, progressive activists went out and spent a lot of time making sure that high propensity black voters were afraid of Carlos Vega and the police unions, and they could easily tag him as just a pawn of the police unions. So, optically, they sort of screwed the pooch there by allowing the uh, uh, the perception to be that Carlos Vega wasn't uh, out for their interest or out for for uh, you know tough on crime or whatever, but out because whatever the police are doing, and obviously they have a negative opinion uh, of them in a lot of these neighborhoods. So, the that was a politically boneheaded move in a way. And, and of course they didn't realize that they were, you know, doing that until it was too late. So that was hard. And we see sometimes these sort of like, uh, chaotic, uh, quick chaotic, uh, races against Kim Gardner in St. Louis, another veteran homicide prosecutor with no money ran against her in the democratic primary and got crushed. And Kim Fox basically had no opponent, I believe in the democratic primary, but then got a Republican judge to run against her in Cook County, and he had no money. And also his message was a little too hard line, I think, and, and didn't uh, fit there. I mean, you, the the community concerns always come first. As Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. And if you don't put it through that prism, people aren't going to listen to you. And I think we need to tailor our message about crime and justice and all those things to who the people are who are, who are being affected by these policies. Uh, we can't just sort of uh, rubber stamp it. The, the problem with Soros' effective uh, strategy has been it doesn't matter what the demographics or the concerns or whatever the local, local media are. These are hyper-local elections, and they're almost all in highly democratic areas. So the general election is never a fight. All he needs to do is win the Democratic primary. And knowing that they're hardcore activists and most people are uninformed about these kind of races that are even down ballot on the primary ballot, they uh, can, you know, spend millions of dollars, you know, telling a fairy tale to to the voters they need to vote for them, win the primary, and then the, the show's over. In Arlington County, here outside of D.C., uh, the woman beat an incumbent Democrat who was Traditional law and order, not like you know Jeff Sessions or anything, but 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 a, a reasonable person, and uh, she beat the other woman, the the incumbent, because she engaged activists. She got all the Soros money. She flooded the airwaves. Mm. The idea of a prosecutor's race in a primary running TV and radio ads is is unprecedented until the Soros money came in. Wow. It, it just never happened. They're spending millions of dollars. When the average – even large jurisdiction DA race in this country, if they spent 10000 to $50,000, that's a heck of a lot of money until recently. And now it is frequently the case where a Soros prosecutor's campaign has millions of dollars either directly or indirectly for it
1: that that's very sobering because again if if soros is spending that much money it it kind of proves my thesis that th- these races in some ways are more important than the big national elections because that is going to determine your safety in your area and that's really the biggest issue are you are you starting to see momentum in the pendulum swing you know i'll never forget i had this conversation with heather mcdonald when everyone was just salivating on the so-called right over the First Step Act and the entire agenda around it, the de-incarceration agenda that people on the right bizarrely um, jumped on the Soros train. And she was like, look, you know, it just might have to get bad again. And, and people forgot what it was like and you know, before the early 90s and might have to go back to that in order to really get things right again. Are you... I mean, it's gotten worse than I could have imagined this quickly... Because what I'm seeing, I'm a little bit biased. I'm right outside of Baltimore. So it legitimately is worse than it ever was in the 80s and early 90s. Um, It's really, really bad. But I think that's a lot of places. Are people waking up to that?
0: Slowly. I think people are where uh, I I would say I was in 2016. I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post that got a lot of pushback. Uh, actually directly by the Koch machine um, saying that crime is rising and that Trump's comment in June and May of that year that had been PolitiFacted uh, as pants on fire was actually true because Politifact was looking at data all the way back from 2014. And over 2015 and 2016, the data had shifted. And PolitiFact didn't realize that the FBI national data at that time was only updated every 18 months. So they were using super old data, and I went to city level data and showed that it cities homicides particularly were rising dramatically. They rose about 20% over those two years. 23% actually. Um, And I showed that and 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 obviously they got a lot of pushback from these people because they didn't want that to be true. It can't be true. It just can't be true. Um but that is the same thing happening there. I ended that piece going It's not exactly clear what's happening here, but you can't make up your own facts and deny that it's happening. I think that's kind of where the voters are now. Uh, Why is it happening? Who's doing it? What's going on? And so there's this debate uh, that we see, particularly on the left and the progressive wonks, who went through the stages of grief, effectively, um, when the murder spike became apparent, First, they said it's not happening and what you're saying, the data yeah. doesn't bear out after George Floyd. This couldn't be the cause, blah, 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 blah. Then they said – the the funny one, of course, is it's all these people buying guns. It's because there's so many guns on the street and it's new guns. And, of course, there actually a study came out by serious academics who were actually probably trying to prove it was Yes, in California. Found out that it wasn't guns and guns had very little to do with it and uh, then of course it's covid 19's fault but but if you actually do it and we did do it uh, I did do the analysis for this that the uh that the real breakpoint was in June late late may and June when the murder started skyrocketing it wasn't in um uh March
1: or April yeah March
0: or April that's I mean there was a there was an increase but the increase if you actually look over time started in January and it went very slowly up even through uh March and April uh and then it just takes off in uh, in June and uh, through the rest of the uh, 12 months. So the 12 months, June to June, we have seen roughly a 35% increase in homicides across big cities. And in some places, that's actually accelerating this year, uh, Not dec- not going back closer to norms. So we're still increasing. And just to give people a scale of that is, even though the murder spike started roughly in May and June, though there's a little bit of an increase earlier than that, the, there was a 25% increase in murder all of 2020 combined, the whole year. So far this year, we've seen a roughly a twenty-one percent increase in murder over last year's over increase.
1: last year's bump. That's that's, that's what's important. On top
0: important. of last year's. So last so year's
1: so what's important, Sean? And this is where I want to take the conversation and what you're doing with the Soros of prosecutors, but also what we need to push in state legislatures and policy is that a lot of our side, even the good guys that you know want to be tough on crime, they they were kind of a little bit superficial. They thought it was literally, literally the rioting, and certainly the rioting itself spawned a lot of crime. But it's not just the rioting, it's the individual criminals that we now have thousands upon thousands of career violent criminals that, you know, five, ten years ago would have been locked up. Now they're all out on the street, and they were increasingly out on the street. But then you had COVID come, and it wasn't the virus, it was a response to it, where there's two things that we did. And I want you to talk about the devastating effects and what we need to do to turn it around— this, this keeps me, one of the things that keeps me up at night, so it was kind of like one step after another. You know what I mean? They started, okay, the drug crimes, and, and really a lot of them are very violent too, but okay. And then they gradually bumped it up to the point of, with COVID, they were able to move it like five tranches. They were able to get their 30-year plan overnight, and they downright let out murderers or didn't initially lock up people that had a profile of a murderer, and... You had you had, you know well over a hundred thousand people released, but I think so many infinitely more that weren't initially locked up, and th- and that's the incarceration. Then you had the shutdown of the judicial system, which then created an, a, 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 we already had a backlog of court cases, but then it created an insane juggernaut where now there's a cascading effect where even the better prosecutors have to. Uh, do triage and dismiss some cases, take pleas in cases where they should aggressively uh, go for you know more jail time, and then obviously the Soros dudes are going to exploit it to, hey, heh, we, we don't mind dismissing cases, we have a backlog, and they'll cleanly just get rid of them. So where are we now in terms of, of the crime problem? Uh, aren't we going to see a massive spike from this?
0: Absolutely. I mean, we're already seeing it. Um, And and one of the things that people don't understand when they look at crime data is it is all dependent on reporting and the quality of the uh, police. But that is obviously influenced by what we're talking about with the prosecutors, the quality of the reporting in the sense of is this actually what occurred or is this what it says on the paperwork? And what I mean by that, in Washington, D.C. last year, there was an incident where a woman was violently mugged and uh, attacked and you know, attempted sexual assault in a relatively tony part of the city. If anyone knows D.C., it's, it's Logan Circle. And when she was attacked, the police came to the scene or whatever else. And eventually, because she wanted to follow up with what happened to the perpetrator and everything like that, she gave a description to the cops, obviously left the scene and all that. She got the police report. And it said uh, this this violent assault went down to a misdemeanor disturbing the peace charge. (laughs) Like they literally – it stopped being a felony and it stopped being sexual and it became a minor incident because the D.C. police knew, one, they weren't going to catch the guy. So it's going to affect their clearance rate or two, that it looks bad when they report out violent crimes like these. Now, the, the cognitive dissonance there is, of course, the people in that neighborhood and the victims in particular know that stuff like that's happening, whether or not it shows up in statistics. So, but we can't globally see into that when that stuff gets covered up or the transparency isn't there. So we're dealing with that problem. And I think we're seeing that with COVID, where we see murder numbers and shooting numbers uh, highly elevated, and we see a lot of other crimes going down a lot. And there's there's other, you know, criminological reasons for that. But are they going down as much or at all, or is there something else afoot? Because the old joke in crime stats is you can't hide bodies. That's oh, so, why murder- so, so, Sean,
1: I wanted, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't have a good answer to this, but this is where you're headed, so I just want to steer it. So violent crime is incontrovertible. I mean, not every corner of the country, but in most places, it really is going up in almost every metro area significantly. And that's, you know, it was kind of murky for a couple of years there where we thought it was going up, but the, you know, uniform crime data didn't show that. Now it certainly does, and that's clear. Fine, we get that. But nonetheless, even after this iteration, kind of the post-Floyd COVID jailbreak dynamic, almost almost everywhere I see, the category designated as property crimes Still continues to go down and down and down every year, just like we saw with violent crime until the left reversed the trend and I could just tell you where I live I, that that does not reflect reality. you see the vandalism you the car thefts are out of control. I mean residential burglaries obviously because you know people are home like more than ever before with working from home um but but I, I'm just not seeing that.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, again, goes a little bit to the reporting, and it actually comes back and ties to the prosecutor's challenge. So uh, just to give a a sense uh, for folks in terms of scale of what he means by property crime, the FBI uh, categorizes uh, four offenses as property crime, uh, burglary, larceny, uh, vehicle theft, and there's one other that for some reason is not on this shit chart. But regardless, it, the total volume of property crime in 1990 were, was 12.6 million property crimes. So that's larcenies, auto thefts, all the way through, right? In 2019, there were 6.9. So we're seeing about 50% decline in overall property crime. That sounds great. But the number one property crime, vault by volume, is larceny theft. And this is where we're going. Larceny theft has to be at the felony threshold. And what we've seen across the country in <laughs> red and blue states is an elimination of the felony threat theft threshold to any reasonable amount. So in Texas, it used to be $250. In California, it was $750. In Texas, it's now, I believe, over $1,200. And in California, it's basically non-existent. But uh, it's, I think it's $1,500 statutorily or whatever. But why that matters is, Daniel, you and I could walk into the big screen store around the corner from your house, and both of us carry out two big screens. And they've gotten so cheap now that as long as they were each $749, we would both combine if we were carrying out the two ourselves – Still not hit the felony threat threshold in in most states, meaning we didn't commit a crime. That is not in the data. That didn't happen. That's a so mi- so. It's almost problem. like
1: jailbreak begets jailbreak. Exactly. So and, th- and,
0: the and you menti- steal a yeah. laptop from somebody uh, off of the table in the coffee shop, even if it's strong arm, it doesn't uh, constitute a felony. Uh, both because of the prosecutor's discretion not to not to file the charges. The fact that the cops are going to, you know, dismiss it altogether, uh, and legally, in the case of where they've changed it by by uh, by actual statute, uh, it doesn't constitute a felony either. So therefore, the UCR, the FBI statistics, do not capture that as a crime. So effectively, we've erased property crime because we've just legalized it.
1: So, so this is the cute thing about it. They, they, it's like again what what uh, Elijah said to King Ahab. Have you killed and have you inherited? I keep using that with COVID, but it's true here. They benefit from their crime. So, you know, they they codify their mentality into the data that they view things as low-level crimes. And increasingly, murders now was in some circumstances, low-level crime. Unless, you know, you don't get vaccinated, then they say that's murder. But the point is that they don't view that as a felony. So, doggone, they don't. Recorded as a felony, and then it's self fulfilling, and you don't have the numbers. And just like we're seeing a lot of data manipulation with COVID, they're playing the same games with crime. And I've heard, I've heard a lot of this that you know, increasingly they they don't want to report it, they don't want to make their precinct look bad, so they. They always downgrade it. They ignore things. And and now, you know, just statutorily, thanks to a lot of these red state legislatures, by the way, places like Louisiana, they've really downgraded a lot of felonies. Uh, Oklahoma is a big state where you're talking about where they have a huge theft problem because they uh, had a ballot initiative where they did what California did. Um, and they have a governor that uh, literally you know instituted the greatest single-day jailbreak in American history. So this is a red state and a blue state problem. Now I want to get back to you know your agenda with Virginians for Safe Communities. What is your short-term agenda in Northern Virginia, and what's your big-picture strategy against Soros? So the the, the,
0: the short-term agenda is to affect what in Virginia is called a removal proceeding. Uh, most people would 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 perceive it like in California as a recall. You circulate a petition. You get a sufficient number of voters in that jurisdiction to sign uh, an attesting to a statement of cause, which is basically a short form of indictment. And then you submit those to the court. The court finds that you have a number of valid signatures. And it triggers – get this in, – in California, it would trigger another election where you would they would ask the entire population, should this person be recalled, removed from office, like they're doing with Gavin Newsom in September – And then the second question on the California ballot is who should replace them in Virginia. It's different. It goes to a trial. It defaults to a bench trial, which means by judge. But the target of removal can request a jury trial, which has to be a unanimous verdict by 12 citizens of that jurisdiction, just like any jury pool and is effectively, you know, a short trial where where they're prosecuted. Um, And if they are found guilty, under the standard of clear and convincing evidence, not preponderance of evidence, it's the normal civil standard, and it's not clear, it's not reasonable doubt like the criminal standard. They are removed from office. They have only one avenue of appeal, and that is directly to the state Supreme Court, and they can only rule on procedural grounds. They cannot change it based on substance, like the cause. And then they, it then that triggers an election to replace that person um, within 60 to 90 days of the final removal uh, order, so that's our goal here: is to submit the petitions, win at trial, and trigger a new election to allow the people of these three counties—Arlington, Fairfax, and Loudoun—to have their voice heard, uh, because effectively they were shut out. One, the only primary voters really had a, a say in in two of those counties, Fairfax and Arlington, and in uh, Loudoun, it was a very close race, fifty-one forty-nine, but the. Uh, d a who was actually the interim d a because her boss had retired early, I think due to health reasons uh, who faced the soros d a the Soros candidate uh lost by only a few thousand votes or a thousand votes sure and, and, and Loudoun
1: is is an area really i mean that that's what I start out the show with i mean if we're going to lose a Loudon, it, it is turning blue, but if we're going to lose that to a Soros prosecutor, that's very disturbing, and that's got to be the first area we shore up
0: and exactly and nobody uh, Nobody who voted – not nobody, but, but a very few people who voted understood her agenda. Yeah. Her name is Buda Biberai, and, and no one really understood her agenda and, uh, and knew how that change was going to affect that. So one of the outcomes – and this should shock people, and this is what I'm talking about in terms of localizing an issue – is in Loudon, in a middle class to upper middle class areas, you know, exurb of, of District of Columbia, what is this woman doing? she is dismissing or diverting domestic abuse assault cases and these by the way if you understand criminal law if somebody declines to prosecute or seek charges against their abuser uh the charges are dropped so that's not the prosecutor's problem anymore right you you did Mm -hmm. that no these are charges that the the victim pursued they continued to go for and yet she dropped them so there were 800 cases 400 of them were dismissed out of hand, and almost and only uh, 66 resulted in guilty outcomes whatsoever, pleas or anything else, and the remainder were diverted or delayed for years. Well, that means that person is now a threat to the person pro- uh, uh, pursuing charges. They're clearly a threat to any future partner they have, and it's just it's just unbecoming that people who abuse their spouses would not or their partners. Would not see any uh, any um, uh, any any consequences, and we know that people with previous felony records and other violent acts go on to commit domestic abuse, yes. have protection orders brought against them, and then go on to do terrible things. There were a number of. I incidents. have noticed
1: that, by the way, Sean, a lot. So I mentioned the 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 firearms felonies. I've really noticed that recently. A lot of the most heinous murderers, you look at their record, their life story, they have that domestic abuse.
0: And and, and, the, and another thing that gives you pause, and it's, it's really strange in terms of people who are basically ticking time bombs, and the Soros prosecutors like to um, go soft on them or just throw up their hands. Here in Fairfax County, where I live, the prosecutor's name is Steve Descano. And this individual is all in on, on all Soros things, ended cash bail, unilaterally, by the way, this is, this is crazy, unilaterally raised the felony theft threshold, just said, I know it statutorily says $1,000 in Virginia law, which was by done by the liberals in Richmond, by the way, still not high enough. So it's $1,500. And actually, I'm not going to prosecute any theft really at all. He just wrote a memo and put it on his website saying, no, I've changed the threshold. But on top of that, he has ceased prosecuting serious misdemeanors. Virginia is a little strange in that the DA's office doesn't have to prosecute them, but they almost all do. And so he's forcing cops and the actual victims who reported the crime to be the prosecutors. The judges in Fairfax County have not taken kindly to this and have dismissed cases and, and chastised him repeatedly for stuff like this, but one of those crimes... So these crimes that he's dismissing, by the way, are DUI, reckless driving, and a series of other you know, serious offenses. One of them is animal cruelty. You do not get charged with a high-level, an A-level misdemeanor for animal cruelty unless what you did was pretty darn bad. That is a direct precursor to violence against humans. Every yep. single serial killer we know tortured animals first. Yep.
1: It's unbelievable. Yeah, the low-level crime. I love that low-level crime business. So that's really – that's a very important insight. Just a technical question before we get to the bigger picture. Um, So obviously, you know, we talked about the Philadelphia race, Atlanta race, and the way you're going to have to run with raising money and having ads and, you know, reaching out to communities. But you mentioned there's a step before that. Uh, you could do that if you want to wait until 2023 and when they're up for re-election. But if you want to get them out sooner, you have this kind of quasi-judicial you know, judicial recall process that's almost like an impeachment trial, like a political trial type of thing. My problem is, aren't the judges all dirtbags in Northern Virginia, Blue Virginia, and wouldn't a jury pool never unanimously vote to convict?
0: I mean, that's always a risk. Um, They're not all uh, uh, bad judges. They're not all uh, unreachable. Um, But you have to take a shot and you have to draw a line in the sand. And that's what we're doing here is saying there is recourse. There are people who want to stand up that they didn't have their voices heard and uh, they deserve justice. And also people need to see what is actually happening. There is a huge gap in knowledge about what's going on and who represents them. The joke I always tell in, in Northern Virginia particularly, and I know this probably applies to a lot of people who live in the exurbs around the country, is people in Northern Virginia don't know what county they live in, let alone who their elected officials are, until their tax assessment comes. So, uh, of course, they don't know what the DA is doing. They don't know what's going on until they no. become a victim or they're somehow on the wrong end of his injustice so or hers, and so... People need to know what's going on and why this is a problem and why this can't stand. And that's what we're doing is both educating and giving them the means uh, of accountability. And so to what I think you're alluding to, Daniel, is, is true. And I've said this is this is an opportunity for us to show we're going to draw a line in the sand on these folks. And then the next step is to take this elsewhere. There are, as I say, 75 of these people and growing. Soros Is there a list up. anywhere? Uh, I, could, I could show you. It's, it's, a little, uh, it's a little murky because there's a group called Fair and Just Prosecution. You can look them up. There's basically their think tank clearinghouse social club. And they, they, issue, they issue letters all the time that, um, that have signatories on them. Not all of them are prosecutors, but from my uh, analysis, I've, I've come to about 75 of them are currently elected. But again, in the next cycle, we will see another 20 to maybe 30, 35 elected uh, in 2022 at the very least uh, if nothing happens here and nobody stands up because the traditional prosecutors have no finance financial means. They have no way of explaining what's going on. And uh, in a lot of these jurisdictions, it's really just Democrat on Democrat violence and therefore— You know, whoever goes the most hard left wins. I mean, we just saw this in uh, Philadelphia, obviously, where a law and order message fell flat for various political reasons. But it wasn't that it didn't have resonance. But people know we can reach Democrats. I'll give people a statistic that I think they should uh, really look into because they don't recognize this. Gallup did a survey in 2019, and then they've replicated it in 2021, actually, after the Floyd riots of a number of what they call fragile communities, basically inner city. There's a few, um, you know, Appalachia communities, but I'm just talking about the sub-demographics of inner city urban areas. These are largely black and, and Hispanic. And in the south side of Chicago, I kid you not, 93% of people said they want more or the same amount of policing, 93%. When you When you just go more policing, it's like 60%. These communities may have problems with some of the tactics or whatever of policing, but they need the police. The people who need the police want the police. It's only the people who have the luxury yeah. to live behind gates and guards that say we don't want the police because I don't need the police. The, the
1: Martha's Vineyard crowd, yeah. I mean, the lockdowns don't hurt them. The illegal immigration doesn't hurt them. The crime doesn't hurt them. Um, it's a classic thing. And and the body count, and, and I think— It's cynical, but you know it's true. As much as crime has spiked, I don't think it's still as uniform as it was before it popped on the front end in the early 90s. It very much is – it's spilling over into some nicer areas, but it's very much in the urban areas. And these – and white liberals in particular – they just don't care. They really, that's the truth. They really don't care. Hey, you know, our people are people getting killed? Like all the people that accuse everyone else of being racist, they're actually the ones that they don't care. Um, and, and I, I mentioned well, this on let, the show. Hey, Daniel, yeah. I'll,
0: stop, I'll stop you there because you're from Baltimore. So you at, get something that, that kind of contradicts your point to a certain extent. When Baltimore crime and violence and nuisance crime even was isolated to east, west Baltimore and Sandtown. The people who live in Baltimore County, Harford County, and Arundel County who either commuted in or had some work to do in downtown Baltimore, go have dinner at the Center Club, which for everyone doesn't know is like a posh club and a high-rise mm-hmm. downtown. Those people who get off the interstate were like, I'm not going to West Baltimore. Why do I care what the murder rate is? That doesn't bother me. Then the crime has taken over those areas as you speak to one of the posh hipster areas in Baltimore. It's called Fells Point. It is now out. being overrun by violence. The little Italy is overrun by violence. Up by where you live, uh, a Jewish, I believe, he's an Israeli guy was murdered at his front door. Like, there's this. This stuff is spreading. It, it, it people, is. It is spreading because and people. Then, then it's hitting home that it may not yes. be where they live, but it's where they go. And, and so, this is
1: why you're right that now is the time to strike because it is being brought home. Because it used to be, it was a targeted jailbreak. Now there's no safety net. Like if you look at the amount of violent criminals that have been released, they get a vote. I mean they're gonna act. <laughs> they're gonna commit. There, there's no. You can't hope that away. And there is nothing. I don't. You know the juvenile crime. And it's funny. I'm glad you mentioned that story. And I think you have it elsewhere. But the Baltimore thing. So people say, oh, I'm not going to that part of Baltimore. Well, as you all well know, from my side, you go. You go from the north down in from the county. So you go on the JFX. And when you get off the there's only one way to get there, you get off, it turns into President Street, and that is the juggernaut. That's how you get downtown. You got the squeegee boys down there now. You know, that 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 was the first Harbinger, just like we saw during Giuliani's days, right in front of a police station, by the way, and they get extremely violent. Um and and a lot of businesses, my brother-in-law has a you know, accounting firm down there. The clients have said they will not come. They absolutely will not come there, uh, because yeah. you need to go there to to pass through that, and they, these guys get violent.
0: Well, uh, Daniel, I'll leave you with this, and this is this is a, a, an insight that somebody gave me. I, I sort of pithied it up, but I I made a comment at a conference. I said, you know, eventually when the bodies stack up, people are going to take notice, and 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 that's what happened with Giuliani in the early '90s. He lost in '89. It was really bad, obviously, already, but he still lost for headwinds. People were still like, I'm not voting for a Republican. Oh, my God. And then it, by 93, when they had at this point uh, five consist- consecutive years of 25, to, you know, 23 to 2,500 murders a year, uh, Julian was voted in. But this fellow said to me, no, it wasn't the bodies. Those were happening in the Bronx. They're happening in Bed-Stuy. <laughs> that wasn't Times Square. I don't care. It was the trash in the street, not the blood in the street that got Giuliani elected. And that is kind of where you're going with it is in Baltimore, the city isn't over the, uh, over the, over the moon because there's shootings over the drug trade in bad parts of town that you can avoid. But when you can't go downtown without being accosted, robbed or whatever, people are like, uh, there's a problem here.
1: Yes, yes, that that that's what it is, and you're seeing that in in Manhattan, Upper East Side, you'll have these really expensive uh, apartments, and they'll have the needles and the drugs and the homeless right outside there, and there's nothing stopping it. You got the subway attacks, you got Times Square, you have shootings now, broad daylight. Um, Republicans would be stupid not to jump on this final two minutes. Um, I've done a lot of work. My audience knows this already on Republicans just being awful and buying into this jailbreak. You just wrote an important uh, column that I want everyone to Google. Sean Kennedy losing the victory over crime. Very important um, article there. Uh, do you see any signs that Republicans and Republican oriented interests are changing their tune, like, yeah, Sean and Daniel, you were kind of right. Wow, yeah, crimes are really going up. We need to get off this jailbreak, criminal justice, deform ramp?
0: Yes and no. I mean, the short answer is yes. I I point out in the piece, in 2019, the New York Republicans uh, took a stand against the bail reforms and, and the discovery law, which, by the way, people don't know. In New York, everyone talks about the bail reform. But the discovery law there is much worse. It allows defendants to visit the homes of rapists where they raped them. It allows them to get the contact <laughs> information of witnesses. It's unbelievable. But um, the, they, they took a stand against that uniformly with law enforcement and the, most of the non-Soros prosecutors and said, hell no, they still got rolled because the Democrats are a supermajority in both uh, chambers. But, um, but we saw that there. We're seeing a movement to a certain extent, I know, in, in one of your pet projects in Oklahoma, Pushing back on the shoplifting stuff. I mean, we lost, but in California they had Prop Twenty in twenty twenty to uh, try to repeal some of the the leniency laws that that George Gascon and some other people put in place. Uh, it, it lost, uh, but you know they they put up a fight that was valuable. They didn't have enough money, and that's one of the big challenges: is the forces of law and order are grassroots people, thinkers, average joes, and we have at base public opinion on our side even amongst democrats when you really get down to it but they have the money and the institutions that have basically decided to do this so with the republican party as i point out in the piece the challenge is that the coke network etc has infiltrated so many of the institutions of the right and bought them off is the best way to describe it um and and therefore there's very few voices that are prominent yeah. that will speak up. Tucker Carlson's an exception. Sean Hannity seems to have made a turn on this. If you go back and Google him on crime, he'll he'll talk all about right on crime, how great it was a few years ago. And now he's switching, but, um, that those people are, are, are pushing back to some extent, but, uh, they were all afraid of, of the, of Trump and they're still afraid of Trump, even though it really wasn't Trump. It was, you know, uh, Kushner, et cetera, that, um, uh, that that phenomenon is now being uh, reversed to some extent, uh, but we need to keep the pressure on, and we have to hold, especially the GOP leadership right now, who are trying to use crime as their winning edge in many of these political races here in Virginia, and then yep. we'll see nationally in 2022 to you know needle and knife the Democrats that they actually have to mean what they say. Yes. They use the phrase defund the police. Oh, they God. use the phrase. They use the phrase, you know, like pro-criminal or whatever, but they don't actually mean they're going to reverse those policies or what that is because sure. either the cokes are holding them back or they just don't have the political stomach to make that argument. And uh, we can't allow the Republican Party, I hate to say it, I'll put it bluntly, to do what they did to the Tea Party, which is they rolled them. They they captured Co-opped their the message, message, co-opted it, ran one – obscene amount of state legislative seats. And I'll be honest, state legislators were much better, but they won Congress. And then Paul Ryan and all these people had no intent on, on, on actually tackling the debt without adding new entitlements or, or doing that. They just used it as a cudgel. And what, what, what reveals that is on crime and on uh, spending is how much money they let Trump spend, especially with COVID and with other things, even, uh, or they were going to let him spend if he gets get infrastructure package through and uh, with obviously what he did with COVID and uh, what he's done on incarceration beca- because they didn't really mean what they said back then. They just knew that it was a way to power and we need to make them s- see the fact that we will hold them accountable if they yes. don't hold up their side of the bargain. And they have to give us specifics. Just soundbite strategy about yes. defund the police Get, is gibberish. Yeah, I, we got to
1: force them to talk about incarceration, jailbreak, the numbers. The police is always a lovey-dovey thing. Republicans, at least rhetorically, never moved off of that. A couple were into the police reform business. But for the most part, you know that was always like being pro-military too in an abstract sense. That doesn't tell us much. Where do you stand? Do you believe fundamentally— In general, you know, there's exceptions on all sides. But on net, fundamentally, do we have an under-incarceration or an over-incarceration problem? And that is the IQ test in one question for me um, as to where someone stands. And obviously, the Soros prosecutors believe that even now after they – what is it? I mean, the the incarceration rate in America just just since COVID is down like a quarter, uh, like 25% or so – um, and then that's after a number of years of, of a downward trajectory, especially at a federal level, but a lot of individual states. So, you know, they think it's that. But what about Republicans? They say they love the police, but then out of the other side of their mouth. I mean, I can tell you, Sean, when they're hopelessly in the minority. Yeah. In California and New York, they seem pretty aggressive. But then when they actually can make a difference in Oklahoma and Tennessee, Louisiana had a whole jailbreak fest just this past term uh they they're they're stuck on st- uh, stuck on stupid i mean they keep they're keeping on it even even in florida they passed some stupid juvenile expungement bill luckily the governor uh vetoed his own party on that but uh, the, what what i think that tells you Sean, is that the coke network the chamber of commerce gets in on this a little bit in some some cases they're very strong in these legislatures
0: absolutely and they and it One thing that people don't realize is that your state legislator is a part-time job. Their real job during the day is they're a realtor or a lawyer or an exterminator or something random. And that's what they make money on. They don't make much money being a legislator. They actually have to take a three-month vacation because they only legislate for a few. They don't know jack about jack in most cases. They certainly don't know much about crime or any of these things. They have a gut instinct, but they're easy to sweet talk. And that's what the Coke people came in. They said, we'll give you money in your campaign. We'll put up ads for you. We'll make sure you stay in power. We'll defend you on you know, charter schools. Just do these other five things for us. And uh, they obviously rolled over. And, and this is the thing. I want everyone, if they can, visit safecommunitiesva.com. We're making a stand. We're making the fight. But if you want to do something to make a real impact, because this is a long game, is – you need to demand transparency about what's going on in your criminal justice system. That's who the judges are, what sentences they're putting down, it's, what the prosecutors are doing. And here's a key thing, recidivism data, and specific to who and when they're being released. You mentioned Louisiana. Louisiana had put out its justice reinvestment thing in 2017 and has now you know, continued to double down on it since then, but, and led by Republicans in the legislature, by the way, and fought by, against Republicans in the legislature, but still. The state and the governor has only put out one follow-up report, though he pledged to put out one annually. We have no data about what happened to these guys. Yep. You can Google and find murderers, but those are only the ones that the cops came forward and said this guy was released. The cops were an entrepreneuring
1: local media uh, personality. We saw that in Utah. We have no
0: ability to see the scale of this.
1: Yeah, it's funny you just reminded me. we got to end in a couple minutes, but I was just going to say that. You know, this was what happened with Tom Cotton's amendment in the First Step Act. They are like, you don't understand. These are low-level people. They're never going to commit another crime. We've invented the greatest anti-recidivism. Common, you know, it's really critical race theory type of courses. But these courses that will put them into shape. And Tom was like, all right, so put your money where your mouth is. You're right. Let's let's just have a bill to track, um, you know, all the re-arrests and, you know, when they're released and when they're re-arrested and the type of crime and their history and it was voted down by all, not just the Democrats, but the Republican supporters of, of the jailbreak bill. And it kind of reminds me of like the whole vaccine liability thing. This is safe and effective. you're a neo-Nazi, if you question any aspect of it, like, all right, so then you're going to, you know, uh, take on liability, right? You know, it's is safe. And no, no, we're not doing that. You know, it's just the funniest thing that they, they hate transparency because I was telling you when I saw that New Jersey case with the COVID jailbreak and you and I have been doing some reporting on a, cases here and there, I bet there's exponentially more, but you'll never know. It's, it's not, unless you have a reporter that took the time that knows the community or the police made a big deal out of it, police union or something, we have no way of quantifying it. I'll give you the last word and we'll sew it up.
0: At the end of the day, we need to fight what, what we're, what we're seeing across the country, the violence, the, all these problems. But the only way you could do that is taking a stand somewhere or somehow. So if that's in your community, like what you're doing, Daniel, with the action teams, or if you're here in Northern Virginia or nationally, and you want to take a stand against the Soros prosecutors, go to safe Virginia, safe communities, Virginia. And, uh, uh, we'd love to have your help, uh, as a volunteer, as somebody spreading the message as a donor, whatever it works for you. Um, and we're, we're going to take the fight to them because this is too important. And this is honestly bipartisan and trans ideological. This is common sense that people who do the crime should do the time and come and, and protect our communities. The idea that these people are going to be fixed or whatever is cockamamie. And, uh, and that's unfortunately we live in sort of a bizarro world where back to the old Soviet model of the new man, they think they could just magically transform people into model citizens by putting them through some uh, shrink class or skills class. It's just its ridiculous. And unfortunately, it's costing lives.
1: It certainly is. Safecommunitiesva.com. Thank you, Sean. And folks, we are out of time. I'm taking a couple of days of R&R. I usually come out with some sort of epiphany when i'm on vacation so hopefully i'll come up with some sort of plan if the world doesn't end by then i'll be back same time same place friday god bless you all and thank you for listening